Section 19 of Lucretia Borgia by Ferdinand Gregorovius. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Maynard. Book 1, Chapter 19, Another Marriage Planned for Lucretia. During this time, Lucretia, with her child Rodrigo, was living in the palace of St. Peter's. If she was inclined to grieve for her husband, her father left her little time to give way to her feelings. He had recourse to her thoughtlessness and vanity, for the dead Alfonso was to be replaced by another and greater Alfonso. Scarcely was the Duke of Pizelli interred before a new alliance was planned. As early as November 1500, there was talk of Lucretia's marrying the hereditary Prince of Ferrara, who, since 1497, had been a widower. He was childless and was just twenty-four years of age. Marino Zorzi, the new Venetian ambassador, first mentioned the project to his seigneury November 26. This union, however, had been considered in the Vatican much earlier, in fact, while Lucretia's husband was still living. At the Christmas holidays of 1500, it was publicly stated that she was to marry the Duke of Gravina, an Orsini, who, undeterred by the fate of Lucretia's former husbands, came to Rome in December to sue for her hand. Some hope was held out to him, probably with a view to retaining the friendship of his family. Alexander himself conceived the plan of marrying Lucretia to Alfonso of Ferrara. He desired this alliance both on his beloved daughter's account and because it could not fail to prove advantageous to Caesar. It would not only assure to him the possession of Romagna, which Venice might try to wrest from him, but it would also increase his chances of consummating his plans regarding Bologna and Florence. At the same time, it would bring to him the support of the dynasties of Mantua and Urbino, which were connected by marriage with the House of Ferrara. It would be the nucleus of a great league, including France, the Papacy, Caesar's States, Ferrara, Mantua, and Urbino, which would be sufficiently strong to defend Alexander and his house against all enemies. If the King of France was to maintain his position in Italy, he would require, above all else, the help of the Pope. He already occupied Milan, and he wished to seize half of the Kingdom of Naples and hold it as a vassal of the Church. For France and Spain had already agreed upon the wicked partition of Naples, to which Alexander had thus far neither refused nor given his consent. In order to win over the Duke of Ferrara to his bold scheme, Alexander availed himself, first of all, of Giampattista Ferrari of Modena, an old retainer of Ercole, who was wholly devoted to the Pope, and whom he had made Datarius and subsequently a cardinal. Ferrari ventured to suggest the marriage to the Duke, quote, on account, so he wrote, of the great advantage which would accrue to his state from it. This proposal caused Ercole no less embarrassment than King Federico of Naples had felt when he was placed in a similar position. His pride rebelled. His daughter, the noble marchioness Isabella of Mantua, and her sister-in-law, Elisabetta of Urbino, were literally beside themselves. The youthful Alfonso objected most vigorously. Moreover, there was a plan afoot to marry the hereditary duke to a princess of the royal household of France, Louise, widow of the Duke of Angoulême. Ercole rejected the offer absolutely. Alexander had foreseen his opposition, but he felt sure he could overcome it. He had the advantages of the alliance pointed out more clearly, and also the disadvantages which might result from a refusal. On one hand was Ferrara's safety and advancement, and on the other the hostility of Caesar and the Pope, 
and perhaps also that of France. Alexander was so certain of his victory that he made no secret of the projected marriage, and even spoke of it with satisfaction in the consistory, as if it were an accomplished fact. He succeeded in winning the support of the French court, which, however, was not difficult, as Louis Twelfth was then very anxious for the Pope to allow him to lead his army out of Tuscany, through the states of the Church, into Naples, which he could not do without the secret consent of His Holiness. Above all, the Pope counted on the help of Cardinal Amboise, to whom Caesar had taken the red hat when he went to France, and whose ambitious glances were directed toward the papal throne, which, with the aid of his friend Caesar and of the Spanish cardinals, he hoped to reach on the death of Alexander. It is, nevertheless, a fact that Louis Twelfth, at first, was opposed to the match, and even endeavoured to prevent it. He himself was not only determinedly set against everything which would increase the power of Caesar and the Pope, but he was also anxious to enhance his own influence with Ferrara by bringing about the marriage of Alfonso and some French princess. In May, Alexander sent a secretary to France to induce the king to use his influence to effect the alliance, but this Louis declined to do. On the other hand, he was anxious to bring about the marriage of Don Ferrante, Alfonso's brother, with Lucretia, and secure for her, as portion, the territory of Piombino. He had also placed a check on Caesar's operations in central Italy, in consequence of which the latter's attempts against Bologna and Florence had miscarried. The whole scheme for the marriage would have fallen through if the subject of the French expedition against Naples had not just then come up. There is ground for believing that the Pope's consent was made contingent upon the king's agreeing to the marriage. June 13, 1501, Caesar himself, now created Duke of Romagna by his father, came secretly to Rome, where he remained three weeks, exerting all his efforts to further the plan. After this, he and his men-at-arms followed the French Marshal Aubigny, who had set out from near Rome for Naples, to engage in a nefarious war of conquest, whose horrors, in the briefest of time, overwhelmed the House of Aragon. As early as June, the King of France yielded to the Pope's solicitations, and exerted his influence in Ferrara, as appears from a despatch of the Ferrarese ambassador to France, dated June 22nd. He reported to Ercole that he had stated to the king that the Pope threatened to deprive the Duke of his domain if he did not consent to the marriage, whereupon the king replied that Ferrara was under his protection and could fall only when France fell. The envoy feared that the Pope might avail himself of the question of the investiture of Naples, upon which the king was determined to win him over to his side. He finally wrote the Duke that Monseigneur de Trance, the most influential person at the King's court, had advised him to agree to the marriage upon the conditional payment of two hundred thousand ducats, the remission of Ferrara's annual dues, and certain benefices for the House of Este. Amboise sent the Archbishop of Narbonne and other agents to Ferrara to win over the Duke. The King of France himself wrote and urged him to give his consent, and now he refused Don Alfonso the hand of the French princess. While the French ambassador was presenting his case to the Duke, the Pope's messengers and Caesar's agents were also endeavouring to secure his consent. Caught in a network of intrigue, fear at last forced Ercole to yield. July 8th he had Louis Twelfth notified that he would do as he wished, if he and the Pope could agree upon the conditions. He yielded only to the demand of the king, who advised the marriage solely because he himself had need of the Pope. 
all the while he was urging Ercole to give his consent, he was also counselling him not to be in too great haste to send his son, Don Ferrante, to Rome to conclude the matter, but to hold him back as long as possible, until he himself should reach Lombardy, which would be in September. He even had Ercole informed that he would keep his promise to bestow the hand of Madonna d'Angoulême on Don Alfonso, and he made no effort to conceal the displeasure he felt on account of the projected alliance with Lucretia. To the Ferrarese ambassador he remarked that he would consider the duke unwise if he allowed his son to marry the daughter of the pope, for on Alexandra's death he would no longer know with whom he had concluded the alliance, and Alphonse's position would become very uncertain. The duke did not hurry. It is true he sent his secretary, Hector Bellingeri, to Rome, but only for the purpose of telling the Pope that he had yielded to the King's wishes upon the condition that his own demands would be satisfied. The Pope and Caesar, however, urged that the marriage contract be executed at once, and they requested the Cardinal of Rouen, who was then in Milan, to induce Ercole to send his son Alfonso there, to Milan, so that the transaction might be concluded in the Cardinal's presence. This the Duke refused to do until the Pope agreed to the conditions upon which he had based his consent. While these shameful negotiations regarding Lucretia were dragging on, Caesar was in Naples, and was the instrument and witness of the sudden overthrow of the hated House of Aragon, whose throne, however, was not to fall to his portion. Alexander used this opportunity to appropriate the property of the barons of Latium, especially that of the Colonna, the Savelli, and Estutville, all of which, owing to the Neapolitan War, had been left without protection. The confiscation of this property was, as we shall soon see, part of the scheme which included the marriage. As early as June 1501, he had taken possession of a number of cities belonging to these families. Alexander, accompanied by troops, horse, and foot soldiers, went to Sermoneta July 27th. This was the time that, just before his departure, he made Lucretia his representative in the Vatican. Following Arbuchar's words, quote, Before His Holiness, our master, left the city, he turned over the palace and all the business affairs to his daughter Lucretia, authorizing her to open all letters which should come addressed to him. In important matters, she was to ask advice of the Cardinal of Lisbon. When a certain matter came up, I do not know just what it was, it is said Lucretia went to the above-named Cardinal and informed him of the Pope's instructions, and laid the matter before him. Thereupon he said to her that whenever the Pope had anything to submit to the consistory, the Vice-Chancellor or some other Cardinal in his stead would write it down together with the opinions of those present. Therefore someone should now record what it is said. Lucretia replied, I can write very well. "'Where is your pen?' asked the cardinal. Lucretia saw that he was joking, and she laughed, and thus their conference had a fit ending. "'What a scene for the Vatican! A young and beautiful woman, the Pope's own daughter, presiding over the cardinals in the consistory. This one scene is sufficient to show to what depths the Church of Rome had sunk. It is more convincing than a thousand satires, than a thousand official reports.' The affairs which the Pope entrusted to his daughter were, at least so we assume, wholly secular and not ecclesiastical, but this bold proceeding was entirely unprecedented. The prominence given Lucretia, the highest proof of favor her father could show her, was due to special reasons. 
Alexander had just been assured of the consent of Alfonso d'Este to the marriage with Lucretia, and in his joy he made her regent in the Vatican. This was to show that he recognized in her, the prospective Duchess of Ferrara, a person of weight in the politics of the peninsula. In doing this, he was simply imitating the example of Ercole and other princes who were accustomed, when absent from their domains, to confine state business to the women of their families. The duke had found it difficult to overcome his son's objections, for nothing could offend the young prince so deeply as the determination to compel him to marry Lucretia, not because she was an illegitimate child, for this blot signified little in that age when bastards flourished in all Latin countries, Many of the ruling dynasties of Italy bore this stain, the Sforza, the Malatesta, the Bentivoglio, and the Aragonese of Naples. Even the brilliant Borso, the first Duke of Ferrara, was the illegitimate brother of his successor Ercole. Lucretia, however, was the daughter of a pope, the child of a priest, and this, in the eyes of the Este, constituted her disgrace. Neither her father's licentiousness nor Caesar's crimes could have greatly affected the moral sense of the court of Ferrara, but not one of the princely houses of that age was so depraved that it was indifferent to the reputation of a woman destined to become one of its prominent members. Alfonso was the prospective husband of a young woman whose career, although she was only twenty-one years of age, had been most extraordinary. Twice had Lucretia been legally betrothed, twice had she been married, and twice had she been made a widow by the wickedness or crimes of others. Her reputation, consequently, was bad. Therefore Alfonso, himself a man of the world, never could feel sure of this young woman's virtue, even if he did not believe all the reports which were circulated regarding her. The scandalous gossip about everything which takes place at court passed from city to city just as quickly then as it does now. The duke and his son were informed by their agents of everything which actually occurred in the Borgia family, as well as of every story which was started concerning its members. The frightful reasons which the disgraced forts had given Lucretia's father in writing as grounds for the annulment of this marriage were at once communicated to the duke in Ferrara. The following year, his agent in Venice informed him that, quote, a report had come from Rome that the pope's daughter had given birth to an illegitimate child. Moreover, all the satires with which the enemies of the Borgias persecuted them, including Lucretia, were well known at the court of Ferrara, and doubtlessly maliciously enjoyed. Are we warranted in assuming that the Este considered these reports and satires as really well-founded, and yet overcame their scruples sufficiently to receive a Theus into their house, when they would have incurred much less danger by following the example of Federico of Naples, who persisted in refusing his daughter's hands to Caesar Borgia? It is now time to investigate the charges which were made against Lucretia, and, in view of what Roscoe and others have already proved, this will not occupy us long. The number of accusers among her contemporaries certainly is not small. The following, to name only the most important, charged her explicitly or by implication with incest. The poets Sanazzaro and Pontinus and the historians and statesmen, Matarazzo, Marcus Attilius Alexis, Petrus Martyr, Priuli, Machiavelli, and Guicciardini, and their opinions have been constantly reiterated down to the present time. On the other side, we have our eulogists among her contemporaries and their successors. Here it should be noted that Lucretia's accusers and their charges can refer only to the Roman period of her life, while her admirers appear only in the second epoch, when she was Duchess of Ferrara. 
among the latter are men who are no less famous than her accusers tito and ercole strozzi bembo aldo manuzio tebaldeo ariosto and all the chroniclers of ferrara and the french biographer bayard all these bore witness to the uprightness of her life while in ferrara but of her career in rome they knew nothing lucretia's advocate therefore can offer only negative proofs of her virtue even making allowance for the courtier's flattery we are warranted in assuming that upright men like aldo bembo and ariosto could never have been so shameless as to pronounce a woman the ideal character of her day if they had believed her guilty or even capable of the hideous crimes with which she had been charged only a short time before among lucretia's accusers only those who were actual witnesses of her life in rome are worthy of attention and guicciardini her bitterest enemy is not of this number the verdicts of all later writers however have been based upon his opinion of lucretia because of his fame as a statesman and historian he himself made up his estimate from current gossip or from the satires of pontinus and sanazzaro two poets who lived in naples and not in rome their epigrams merely show that they were inspired by a deep-seated hatred of alexander and caesar who had wrought the overthrow of the aragonese dynasty and further with what crimes men were ready to credit evil-doers the words of bouchard who was a daily witness of everything that occurred in the vatican must be considered as of much greater weight against him in particular has the spleen of the papists been directed for by them his writings are regarded as the poisonous source from which the enemies of the papacy especially the protestants have derived material for their slanders regarding alexander the sixth their anger may readily be explained for bouchard's diary is the only work written in rome with the exception of that of infesura which breaks off abruptly at the beginning of fourteen ninety four which treats of alexander's court moreover it possesses an official character those however who attempt to palliate the doings of the papacy would feel less hatred for bouchard if they were acquainted with the reports of the venetian envoys and the despatches of innumerable other ambassadors which have been used in this work bouchard is absolutely free from malice making no mention whatever of alexander's private conduct he records only facts never rumours and these he glosses over or cloaks diplomatically the venetian ambassador polo capello reports how caesar borgia stabbed the chamberlain perotto through the pope's robe but bouchard makes no mention of the fact the same ambassador explicitly states as does also a ferrarese agent that caesar killed his brother gandia bouchard however utters not a word concerning the subject nor does he say anything about the way caesar despatched his brother-in-law alfonso the relations of the members of the borgia family to each other and to strangers such as the farnese the pucci and the orsini the intrigues at the papal court the long series of crimes the extortion of money the selling of the cardinal's hat and all the other enormities which fill the despatches of the ambassadors regarding all this bouchard is silent even venazza he names but once and then incorrectly there are two passages in particular in his diary which have given the greatest offence the report of the bacchanal of fifty harlots in the vatican and the attack made on the borgias in the anonymous letter to silvio savelli these passages are found in all the manuscripts and doubtless also in the original of the diary that the letter to silvio is a fabrication of neither bouchard nor of some malicious protestant is proved by the fact that marino sanuto also reproduces it in his diary 
Further, that neither Bouchard nor any subsequent writer concocted the story of the Vatican Bacchanal is proved by the same letter, whose author relates it as a well-known fact. Matarazzi of Perugia also confirms it. His account differs from that of Bouchard, whose handwriting he could hardly have seen at the time, but it agrees with reports which he himself had heard. He remarks that he gave it full credence. Quote, For the thing was known far and wide, and because my informants were not Romans merely, but were the Italian people, therefore have I mentioned it. This remark indicates the source of the scandalous anecdote, it was common talk. It doubtless was based upon an actual banquet which Caesar gave in his palace in the Vatican. Some such orgy may have taken place there, but who will believe that Lucretia, now the legally recognized bride of Alfonso d'Este, and about to set out for Ferrara, was an amused spectator of it? This is the only passage in Bouchard's diary where Lucretia appears in an unfavorable light. Nowhere else has he recorded anything discreditable to her. The accusations of the Neapolitans and of Guicciardini are not substantiated by anything in his diary. In fact, we find corroboration nowhere unless we regard Matarazzo as an authority, which he certainly was not. He states that Giovanni Sforza had discovered that criminal relations existed between his wife and Caesar and Don Giovanni, to which a still more terrible suspicion was added. Sforza, therefore, had murdered Gandia and fled from Rome, and in consequence Alexander had dissolved his marriage. Setting aside the monstrous idea that the young woman was guilty at one and the same time of threefold incest, Matarazzo's account contains an anachronism. Sforza left Rome two months before the murder of Gandia. An authentic despatch of the Ferrarese ambassador in Milan, dated June 23, 1497, makes it clear that Lucretia's worthless consort was the one who started these rumors about her. Certainly no one could have known Lucretia's character and mode of life better than her husband. Nevertheless, Sforza, before the tribunals of every age, would be precisely the one whose testimony would receive the least credit. Consuming with hate and a desire for revenge, this was the reason he ascribed to the evil-minded Pope for dissolving the marriage. Thus the suspicion he let drop became a rumor, and the rumor ultimately crystallized into a belief. In this connection, however, it is worthy of note that Guido Postumus, Sforza's faithful retainer, who in epigrams revenged himself on Alexander for his master's disgrace, neither mentions this suspicion nor anywhere refers to Lucretia. In none of the numerous despatches of the day is this suspicion mentioned, although in a private letter of Malipiero, dated Rome, June 17, 1497, and in one of Polo Capello's reports, allusion is made to the, quote, rumor regarding the criminal relations of Don Giovanni and his sister. Could the fact that Lucretia never engaged in any love intrigue, at least she is not charged with having done so, with anyone else when there were in Rome so many courtiers, young nobles, and great cardinals, who were her daily companions, have given rise to these reports? It is a fact that nothing has been discovered which would indicate that this beautiful young woman ever did engage in any love affair. Even the report of the ambassador, who, writing to Ferrara, not from Rome but from Venice, states that Lucretia had given birth to a child stands alone. She had at that time been separated from her husband Sforza a whole year. But even if we admit that this rumor was well-founded and that Lucretia did engage in some illicit love affair, are not these relations and slips frequent enough in all societies and at all times? 
Even now nothing is more readily glossed over in the polite world. It is difficult to believe that Lucretia, in the midst of the depravity of Rome, and in the environment in which she was placed, could have kept herself spotless. But just as little will any unprejudiced person believe that she was really guilty of that unmentionable crime. If it were possible to conceive that a young woman could have the strength, a strength beyond that of the most depraved and hardened man, to hide behind a joyous exterior the moral perturbation which the most loathsome crime in the world would certainly cause the subject, we should be forced to admit that Lucretia Borgia possessed a power of dissimulation which passed all human bounds. Nothing, however, charmed the Ferrarese so much as the never-failing graceful joyousness of Alfonso's young wife. Any woman of feeling can decide correctly whether, if Lucretia were guilty of the crimes with which she was charged, she could have appeared as she did, and whether the countenance which we behold in the portrait of the bride of Alfonso d'Este in 1502 could be the face of the inhuman fury described in Sanazzaro's epigram. End of chapter 19